Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles, 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. You can also email us anytime at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Yes, please. We'd love to talk about the Beatles. 24-8. 24-8, as we say. And we're back. This is a new year. I can't believe it. I can't believe it's 2019. I feel like we haven't done this in ages. I know. It's been a very long... Our last episode was about Christmas stuff. Like, yeah. you know, wonderful Christmas time. And it's crazy. Like, and now it's a whole new year. I can't believe it. I know. I'm so excited to get this year going. And as I've been told you a few times, my word of the year is rage. So expect a couple of rage friends <laughs> on this podcast. I know. Well, I'm sure our listeners have seen. We posted it to our Facebook and our Insta story and I think Twitter, too, of the photo of Paul. He's on, like, holiday right now in St. Barth's. And uh, a a papa, paparazzi, whatever photographer, caught him on the beach and he's slipping off the camera. And Erica texted me and was just like, my mood for 2019. And I was like, yes, agreed. I think that should be everybody's mood for 2019. Paul McCartney with two middle fingers up and a huge smile on his face on the fucking beach is my spirit animal for this year. <laughs> we are so blown. We do not deserve that. We don't deserve that image of Paul on the beach, like flipping off a camera, smiling from ear to ear. And I love also like all the companion images with that, like where there's like him in the water flipping off the camera <laughs> Him without the towel on his shoulder flipping out the camera. So it's like, you know, he was doing it for like a half an hour. I love it. That was like his, that's all he did that day. He was like, fuck you guys. This is my life. This is my day. He is the best. I mean, he's the best. He's had some like questionable moments on this trip. And we'll talk about one of those in a little bit. But like, yeah, that has been the highlight of this whole week, I think, which is fucking Paul's like flipping off the camera. Like, it's so good. He's yeah. the best. So far, the highlight of the whole year. So Beat that, 2019. I know. I don't know if it can be beat. I, I mean, he's going on tour in the U.S., which is great. And there's lots of stuff to look forward to. But, like, that's, I don't know. I want that as, like, a phone case. I want that as a T-shirt. I want I that know. as a license plate somehow. Maybe a sticker. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, you can have it. one of those things, like, in the back where it looks like he's bursting out of the back of the car. <laughs> with or, two middle fingers. Oh my god, what if like, you know how some of those, some cars have like those stick figure families that are really stupid? Sorry <laughs> if you have those, but they kind of annoy me. Like, I want that, but like Paul, just like stick figure Paul with like two fingers in the air. Oh my god, I love <laughs> with a little it. Chowl. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think that'd be so good. Oh, god damn it. Oh, so anyway. <laughs> that's that's our that's our aesthetic this year. Yep. Zero fucks. There we go. Zero fucks given. Yep. Hashtag whatever. Zero fucks. Um, but yeah, anyway, so holiday bullshit's over. Thank God. How was your, how was your holiday time? It was okay. Everybody kept getting sick. So I was like, but I did get the best present ever. I got Red Rose Speedway remastered on vinyl. So that kind of made up for everything. You were so hashtag blessed. Oh my God. It was amazing. So good. Those pictures and the, in the reissue, like the booklet. So good. Oh God. Like hot 1973, Paul. Yeah. So good. Yeah. That's such a good gift. I hear that they're going, I, I mean, I don't have a copy because I snoozed on this one for some fucking reason. I'm going to regret that because uh, they're going for like thousands of dollars now on eBay, which is nuts. That's insane. And like for Red Rose Speedway, it's a good album, but like, eh. 
A thousand dollars? I don't know. It is pretty good though. Like for a remake, it, like, it is good. The new version's really good because they stripped out a lot of the production. So mm, it's okay. Paul sounds really natural and like you know, like he's in the room with you with an acoustic guitar and some of the songs. It's really good. Like I, I need to ask Rob Sheffield because as we know from the episode that he did with us, he hates the song My Love. Like he just hates yeah, it. Hates it. And there was a noticeable difference when they stripped out the production for My Love. So I'm wondering if his hatred ticked down like one or two degrees from hmm. that. We'll have to find out. We'll have to find out. Maybe we'll tweet at him and then like have a public conversation about it. Yeah, yeah, we should all know. But yeah, good <laughs> yeah. album. Nothing, Nothing's going to make Loop First Indian on the Moon a thing that I like. But otherwise... Yeah, that song is embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, that's amazing. I'm so glad you got that. It was, it was nice to live vicariously through that, through that gift. That yeah, was good. It was, it was fun. It was, it was the highlight of my, my holiday. How about you? Anything fun go on? It was pretty quiet. Obviously, last episode we talked about, I just got back from Europe. So it was kind of like I had a week off. So I just sort of like chilled and binged a lot of TV. Um, but, you know, one thing I did that was really kind of weird was I went to um, a New Year's Eve thing where this band was playing it was like a beat it's like a Beatles tribute band but they don't dress up dress up and for anybody who doesn't know and most people don't know you might not know I grew up sort of in the tribute band scene in Ohio and going out to Chicago and that kind of stuff my first job in the music industry was for working for a Beatles tribute band um and That's so awesome. uh, which one they're still around they're called Hard Day's Night and they're from Ohio Cool. Um, shout out to them. They're not listening, but you know, hi guys. Uh, <laughs> um, but like, so I also grew up going to a festival called Abbey Road in the River, which is also still around. But oh, I, I love to, that one. Yeah. Well, I went to the original versions when it was in Ohio in 2002 through I think 04 or 05. Um, and I sort of like the star of the show, he was like the headliner on Saturday night of the fest. So, you know, he's a big deal. Like that's like the primetime slot is this guy called Tim Piper who is this John Lennon impersonator, but he does mostly later John stuff. So his solo work, that kind of stuff. He has a look of maybe like an Imagine era John, uh, like working class hero, that kind of thing. Oh yeah, I've seen his, I've seen his picture. I've never seen him perform. Yeah, and he's been in a bunch of different outfits throughout the years. Like he's super well known. Um, but like, so he was like a superstar when I went to see him and I was like obsessed with him. Cause I was just like, Oh my God, he's so cool. And like, he's, he was so nice and just such a good guy really, really brought the Lennon spirit to life, which was really cool. Like, you know, for a kid, especially being like 13, 14 and seeing this and John was my favorite and you know, on and on. So I hadn't seen him in probably four years. I think I ran into him at the fest for Beatles fans in LA in 2014 here but so he was playing New Year's Eve and a friend of mine was like, do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, that would be fun to see him again. So that was kind of my Beatle related thing of the break was like seeing this guy who I've known for almost over half my life, you know, um, uh, play John again and see him and sort of like touch base and or as my friend Amy uh, calls it, she calls it touching pause when you just sort of check in with each other, touch pause. Aww. So touch pause with him and uh, yeah, it was cool to see him and, and see his new Beatle band um, and plug for them. They're called the B-Tunes and they play around Southern California. But so if you're here, you know, go see them. They're, they're really good. Uh, again, they don't dress up. They play some like interesting selections. They played like Martha, my dear, 
which you never hear anybody play, but it's very cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so that was my thing. And then, I mean, I guess, like, I didn't get, you know, Red Rose Speedway and vinyl, but uh, I did buy myself a little Christmas present. So that was fun. Oh, yeah, um, what's that? I got myself a ticket to go see Michael Nesmith, oh. who I know he's not a Beatle, but we're going to talk about Michael Nesmith because he's the best. Come on, um, how can you not love Nes? Everyone loves Nes. <sighs> I love, I mean, I've been such a huge fan. Obviously, I'm a big Monkees fan, but Nez is my favorite monkey. He, like, his solo catalog is one of my favorite things in the whole world. Um, last year, last January, actually, I saw him on his first tour with, like, doing first national band material, which was his band after the Monkees. And it was just so good. Um, I mean, I saw him at Pappy and Harriet, which is this little club outside of Joshua Tree. And it was just, I was so close to the front and the energy was insane. It was so good. It was still, it was one of my favorite shows I've ever been to in my entire life. And I am so excited because he's going to play the Troubadour here. He's playing at the Coach House in Southern California. He's got a bunch more dates. Um, I mean, I was so lucky to get a ticket. I really hope, you know, for other people who want to go, get your tickets now because I feel like it's going to sell out. He's doing... Stuff from this album called uh, And the Hits Just Keep On Coming, which is one of my favorites. It's got so many good fucking songs. Oh, I can't even deal with it. I'm just so excited. Um, anyway, but I'm going to be at the Troubadour show. So <laughs> anybody who's going, let me know um, because you should definitely check this out. It's going to be historic. He is doing the whole album um, and he's playing with this amazing pedal steel player. I'm just, yeah, I'm excited. So I was like, what's a good gift to get to my, give to myself? Uh, I think this is this is probably it for me. Yeah, treat year. yourself yeah. seriously. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of a so Beatles monkeys holiday, I guess for nice. for me. Yeah. The way it should be. Right. The mm-hmm. way God intended it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. For real. Um, but you know, for some of our listeners, the holidays were a little different because we did our giveaway. That we've been yeah. talking about, which is fun. So just want to say congrats to our winners and everybody's been contacted and I've been chatting to them all, which has been fun. And so I just want to give a shout out to Lisa, Michelle, Joy, Ashley, Emily, Ed, Lisa Marie, and Eli, uh, who won the books and they're coming to you along with some goodies from us. Congratulations, and, uh, guys. Congrats. Um, and yeah, like, I hope we can do more of this stuff. It's so much fun. Um, but you know, make sure you're following us on social media, all that kind of good stuff. And, um, we'll be sure to announce it there first next time we do a giveaway. Yeah. Maybe we'll do one around the New York fest, which is the end of March. Oh yeah. That would be really fun. We should definitely figure something out. And yeah, I mean, is it too early to start talking about fest? My God, it's January. I know. I don't think it it. is because it always creeps up on me. I'm like, how is it possibly March already? But it's it's the last week in March. It's um, in a hotel that's really close to New York City, right in uh, New Jersey, an exchange place right off the public transportation. If anybody is going, let us know. We would love to do some BC the Beatles meetups there. And we really want to do like a late night podcast, a live show again. So let us know and we will definitely include you in our plans we obviously love it we've been so many times now doing different panels doing different events and just hanging out with you know fellow fans and getting to like have that experience together is really fun highly recommend it we would love to like plan some events like erica said around um, our community now so please let us know if you're going and speaking of our community, we will be guests. This is a new Woo-hoo. announcement. I'm so on, excited. I know. On the podcast, She Said, She Said, which is another 
female-led Beatles podcast. It's fabulous. It's from our past guest and John Lennon expert, Jude Sutherland Kessler, and Lena Stagg, who's the author of Recipe Records Cookbooks. I love those books. They're I was so just actually fun. going through my books this weekend, and I took down all her Recipe Records books from my shelf and looked through them. I'm like, oh, I gotta make that. I gotta make that. I gotta make that. So good. We should do like a Julie and Julia thing. <laughs> With, uh, <laughs> recipe recipe that would be amazing. We should definitely do that. Yeah, especially with the alcoholic ones. <laughs> right? Mm. She's good cocktail recipes in there, I gotta mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. So that is broadcast live on a platform called Blog Talk Radio. So it's not on iTunes, but it's on Blog Talk Radio. And the lo- it will be broadcast live on this Saturday, uh, January 12th at 10 p.m. Central. So that's 11 Eastern and eight o'clock pacific yes i think so that's yes. why i my calendar so i hope that's right <laughs> so listen in you've heard jude here but now you'll hear us with her and lena be amazing yeah and yeah as we're talking about new year stuff too you know reminder if you guys have ideas or anything you want to hear from us you know we have some cool stuff in the works but always we're open to ideas um you know let us know we you know you can reach us Obviously, by social media, you can email us, bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Um, you know, we're always looking to highlight underrepresented events and people from the Beatles history in our fan community. So if you've got a cool story, we want to hear it. And we'll bring you on. Like, don't think we won't. So do that. Let us know. And yeah, super excited about this year. We've got, we've got some really cool stuff in the works. Yeah, and thanks to those people who have already submitted ideas. They've been amazing. Yes, love hearing them. It's so cool. I love... Can I just say, I love our, like, going on Facebook and, like, chatting with our, you know, listeners and our friends and stuff. It's just so much fun. I love this. Like, that's the spirit of the Beatles, man. Right there. Yeah, it really creates such a cool community. It's it's great. Well, one more announcement for our next Beatles book club selection we're going to be doing. Brian Epstein's A Cellar Full of Noise. So it's his autobiography. You know, kind of ghostwritten by Derek Taylor, but really what wasn't back in those days. And uh, it's a really cool, another contemporary sort of account of what was going on with the Beatles, kind of similar to Love Me Do, our first selection, but it's in Brian's own words. A lot of it was transcribed from tapes that he made that Derek sort of like put together and made into cohesive text. So it's got a lot of great tidbits, a lot of cool little insidey things um, from that era of the Beatles. It came out, I believe, in 1964. Um, when the Beatles were just hitting America. So, uh, yeah, it's Brian's own words. I can't get much better than that. I can't wait to read this. And it it was out of print for a while, and it's hard to find in print, but you can get it on Kindle for, like, five bucks. Sweet. So read along with us. As you're reading, tweet us at BC the Beatles. You know, post on our Facebook, email us, whatever. Um, Anything you want to talk about with the book, we will talk about on our next book club episode. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, Allison kind of likes Brian a little. So, I mean, a little. yeah. So, I mean, you know, you could probably DM her at any time of the day or night, and her like sensors will go off that somebody's talking about Brian, and she will respond <laughs> within 10 seconds. So. You're acting like I, I not only have a Google alert for Brian Epstein, but I have an eBay alert, which, oh my God, of course I don't. Of course wink. not. Of course wink, not. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have a problem. So anyway. Cellar Full of Noise, or as John Lennon once referred to it, Cellar Full of Boys. It's going to be a great book. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't <laughs> wait to reread it. <laughs> and we'll be doing that probably in about a month.
So I guess let's talk about some news. Like, what's been going on? Well, Allison. <laughs> I didn't make sense, so. <laughs> I am so inquisitive right now. <laughs> no, what could it be? What could it be? So it looks like some previously unseen photos of the Beatles that were taken during Magical Mystery Tour filming were unearthed last month. It's crazy. This dude, he, like, just stumbled on the Beatles uh, when they were filming on the beach in Cornwall uh, during Magical Mystery Tour and just took a bunch of photos, as one does, keeps them stored away for 50 years, and then brings them out and is like, are these valuable? Are these important? Yes. Mm -hmm. Hello. And he also has a letter signed by three out of the four. As he says, Ringo didn't sign the letter because he was in a bad mood that day. (laughs) Um, And then he sold the transparencies, I think, for... I didn't write it down. Twenty-seven hundred. Yeah, pounds? yeah, that's what it was. Twenty-seven. Which, yeah, which I, I'm like, that's kind of cheap, don't you think? That's it does a good seem deal. cheap, especially for three autographs. Maybe that's yeah. go with it. Maybe that's separate. Maybe. But... Yeah, but it got me thinking. I'm like, how much more of this stuff is out there? If people are still unearthing these like things that pop up in their desk drawers or their closets or whatever, it's like, oh, I just want to know. <laughs> I want all the rare things. Well, there's got to be. Do you remember, like, um, I think it was around uh, 2014 for the 50th anniversary of Ed Sullivan. Do you remember those, the picture that of the kids in the car that, like, Ringo took? Oh, yeah. And they reunited that group of people. And oh, I think yes. They had oh, pictures. It was so cool. It was actually, my at the time, my roommate's boyfriend's dad was one of those people stop it oh my gosh that's amazing (laughs) it was so cool oh let's have him on (laughs) oh my gosh that'd be hilarious i'm sure so much more is coming out and i mean a great place to check that out is sarah schmidt's blog meet the beatles for real there's so many like meetings and photos and autographs and things that that fans send into her and she's got this ridiculous repository of stuff. Meets Beatles for Real is also celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, Whoa, which is insane. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So congrats, Sarah. Congrats, Meets Beatles for Real. So amazing. You guys, if you're not checking out this blog, and I think it's just meetbeatlesforreal.com. Yeah. Um, it's it's such a treasure trove. I have definitely spent hours going down that rabbit hole. Oh yeah. <laughs> Time does not exist on that website. She no. could spend forever. <laughs> and it's all keyworded. So if you're like, I want to see like when people met Linda McCartney, like you can find every story that has to do with that. So it's really so good. Um, so this, I found this story interesting because I, and I'll get to my highlight of the week has to deal a little bit with this, but um, I saw a story. Yoko Ono considers revealing the extent of her influence on John Lennon. And at first I was like, what? <laughs> like that could be anything, you know, influence, but it's pertaining to his music, obviously. Um, she specifically likes to talk about how Child of Nature, which we knew but was included on the White Album box set that came out earlier last year, late last year, um, you know, was later changed to Jealous Guy as an example of her influence on him lyrically, whatever, which is fair. I mean, she got a writing credit finally on Imagine 46 years after its release. And John had a great quote I heard recently where he basically said, yeah, she should have been credited as a co-writer from the very beginning on Imagine, but I was just kind of like an asshole with a big ego, so I didn't feel like she should have a credit, you know? (laughs) Which is so classic John, to say something like that. Good for you, Um, John, to admit it, though. Owning up to it is the first step. Exactly. I think that was very big of him to actually say that, so that's great. But, um, But she said something in the article that was like, 
oh, you know, I could say, I could reveal everything, but I think I'll wait another 10 years. I'm like, Yoko, <laughs> darling. I know. <laughs> it pains me when people say shit like that. Cause it's like, if you want to say something, say it now, whether it's good or bad, just say it like, you know, what are you waiting for really? Yeah. I mean, I can see that she, why she would maybe not want to. I mean, I saw so much internet anger over this article and prob- yeah. probably because of the title, because, you know, she's got this reputation for being too great of an influence on John, for breaking up the Beatles, yada, 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 whatever. Yeah. So, you know, people see this and they start skewering her again. But I don't feel like Yoko would be that bothered by things like that. But maybe she's watching out for John's legacy that she doesn't want to insert herself before she feels the time is right because of things like that. I'm sure it's hard, you know, and I'm sure she's used to all this. It makes me sick sometimes when I think about Yoko, what she could have been had she never met John. And we'll have to do a whole, like, podcast about Mm. this, because it's like, you know, she was such a prolific artist. I love her art. The older I get, the more I really relate to and love her art. She's just so damaged. Like, her career is just so damaged. I don't think she personally is damaged. I don't think she gives a fuck. But, like, I don't know. I just, yeah. I think she did have a big influence on him, and I think... If anybody contributes to art, they should get credit for it. Yeah. Just like Linda did with Paul. And I think probably Linda, at least at the beginning, did much less on those songs than Yoko did for John. Not specifically Beatles related, but worth mentioning, vinyl sales grew by double digits in 2018. 10 million units moved up 12% since the year before. Hell yes. Good job, record buyers. Yeah, CDs are gone. Like, I think Best Buy and places like that have stopped selling them as of this year, so... Boo. But uh, but vinyl, it's amazing to see that vinyl is... It just keeps growing and growing. Like, it's bouncing back every year. The number three top-selling vinyl of the year was the Beatles' Abbey Road. And it's funny, because it's like, this is the 50th anniversary of that album. So it was just sort of, like, arbitrarily... Arbitrarily sold that many copies. That's weird, and all those people are going to want to buy it again if Giles Martin does the same treatment on that that he did to the White Album. I can't even think about it. Right. This year's going to be crazy. Insane. Yeah, I love it. I love vinyl. I mean, yeah, you do have to get up and turn it over. That's why people were skinnier <laughs> when there was vinyl. I love it. I've always said that. It's like every time I have to like get my ass off the sofa to flip over the freaking vinyl, I'm like, okay, well, this is why people were skinny in the '60s. That's hilarious. <laughs> I like it, though. It makes you more conscious of what you're listening to because you really can't ignore it. That is true. So let's see. This week in Paul, because Paul keeps us busy. Yep. Uh, Let's see. We we already discussed the two middle fingers, the reason for living in 2019. (laughs) Moving on. Hashtag gives me life. Uh, Paul did a very long interview this week on the show 60 Minutes. So that is up on the CBS website. Not only what they showed on the show, but a whole bunch of little extra clips and it's very cute. There's not a lot that we haven't heard him say in some form or another, but he's really like humble and he's so casual and he's like, she's showing him different things like them at, you know, the, on the rooftop sessions and stuff like that. And he's just kind of like looking at it and, and commentating on it. It's very cool. Oh, that's really sweet. I haven't seen it yet. I'm excited to see it. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Once you get past the like minute long commercial for like do your own colonoscopy or some crap like that like i heard it so many times i don't know why it's just one commercial and it's so bad diy colonoscopy does not sound okay it's 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 like it's like you send something into them and they do it for you it's awful it's awful (laughs) 
Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> but you will hear it. You will hear it and you will see it. And it's like a minute long and you can't skip it. So just be prepared for it. I'm going to prepare mentally now for that. <laughs> Speaking of mentally preparing, a oh lot of god. people we were go. not mentally prepared for what happened on New Year's Eve. No, this was definitely not. My body was not ready for this whatsoever. <laughs> And of course, we all know what happened that day, mm. that day that our, our world crumbled down and all the <laughs> excitement and love and energy around Egypt Station just like vanquished into thin air. Although, to be, fair, to be fair, Erica, we have not talked about this. We've no. saved this for the podcast live. So maybe you love what happened on New Year's Eve. <laughs> maybe I did. What? Maybe No, shut up. So, Paul. <laughs> maybe I did. Oh, okay. Well... I don't know. Anyway, obviously we're talking about Paul releasing his newest track. What's it called? Get Enough. Get Enough. That's right. Um, I don't know that because I shut it off halfway through and I have not been back to listen to the rest no! of it. No! No! <laughs> I can't get through it. I can't get through it. I, I can't. It took me like literally a, almost a week to listen to it because all I saw was Oh my God, Paul McCartney released a new song and it sucks. Like, everybody. It's, it's, I just, oh God, the auto tune. It's weird. It's, it's weird. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I don't understand his choices. I, you know, I'm a disappointed parent right now, really. That's kind of how I feel about it. There's a point in it about two thirds of the way in, I think. So I don't think you heard it when it kind of. Oh, <laughs> kind of morphs into like it kind of gets out of this auto-tune part and into some real like classic Paul McCartney and you're like oh yeah that's what I wanted that's it that's it that's it so there there are some kernels of goodness in it and the auto-tune is sort of weird it could have been a producer choice I don't know do we know who produced it I didn't read the credits for it I think it was Ryan's header okay interesting so I kind of felt like it was Paul wanting to experiment with different kinds of sounds, you know, sounds that other artists are using today. And he got a producer who was willing to like track his voice in the same way that they might track like Kanye's or something. Mm -hmm. And it's that was my thought. It's really incongruous because Paul McCartney's voice sounds so wrong in that space when you first hear it. You're so right. You like you hit the nail on the head. It's exactly that's the ex exact reaction that I had. It's like this is just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right in my bones. <laughs> like listen to this. And it's it's kind of strange. And it's it's sort of auto tuned in some places, and then it's not. It's a little bit inconsistent. So at first I was like, is he just doing this because he can't like sing it or something? But then it, it was definitely an effect as as he went on. But it's just different for Paul. Like it, to hear that is not what anybody was used to and anybody was expecting. So it was definitely super jarring. I mean, here's the thing. Like, you're if you're an older artist and, you know, ha you know, having loved and worked with and listened to a lot, obviously a lot of legacy artists like we all have, it's like some of them nowadays use a little bit of auto-tune, which is fine because what happens to all of us as our voices get older, they change a little bit. You can't do this with it. You can't do that with it. Like, whatever, who cares? Like, you know, work with what you got. Most people do. But, like, I feel like Paul on this track, it's sort of like when you introduce your grandparents to Facebook. Mm -hmm. They don't just get on it and, like, look at your status and, like, 
like it or, you know, just scroll through and then just sort of be like, okay, that was fun. Like, I'm going to go bake cookies. What the fuck? You know, <laughs> it's more like I'm going to go on there. Like my mom did when I got her on Facebook the first time. Uh, she wrote on everybody's fucking wall. She liked every fucking status. She posted like 40 million things like on her own wall. Like, I mean, she just went ballistic because she didn't really know what she was doing. And she wanted to like, just like come out guns blazing. So <laughs> I feel funny. like that's what Paul did with this. It's sort of like, don't just give me like a little bit of auto-tune. Just like make me sound like a, like a robot. Like yeah. make me sound at home in Daft Punk. Give me exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. That's what it was. He does not have personal barriers around what he thinks he should do, which is good and bad. It is good and bad. I'll refer you back to Loop First Indian on the Moon. It's not the first time he's done something that turned out fucking weird and should never have been around. But uh, I like this more than Loop First Indian on the Moon, that's for sure. Okay, well, okay, but all right, let's talk about his fucking video he posted on his Instagram. All right, let's talk about that. I... <laughs> How do you feel about that? Uh, it's embarrassing. That's hard to watch. That's hard like, to watch. I have like 50 people texting me being like, dude. <laughs> This is so embarrassing. I mean, I don't, that's why I'm saying like parts of his, his vacation, which he's still on. So Paul, there's time you can salvage this parts of his vacation, like the, you know, double flip off. Amazing. Mm -hmm. This is like the other swing of the pendulum. And then like the thing I hate, it's like on that video, Mary commented yes or something. And I was like, Mary, don't support your dad. <laughs> like, For God's sake. You're, I think you might be there, so have the power to stop this. No one can stop him. He's a force. I just can't. I can't. I don't know what to do about Paul. I mean, he can just do his thing. He's Paul, and we love him regardless, but I don't know, man. And if, he, if we don't like it, he's going to flip us the double bird with a smile on his face. We know how this is going to end. Mm -hmm. But it, it drives me crazy because I heard, it's funny, I hadn't heard it before. I know people have the bonus tracks of Egypt Station. And I may have heard it before, but it didn't really like sort of sink in with me. But I was driving last weekend and listened to the radio and heard nothing for free on Breakfast of the Beatles, which is a bonus track. Mm -hmm. It like sunk, in, sunk into me. And I'm like, oh my God, this should have been on the album. It's so fucking good. So when I'm like, oh, cool, another unheard track from those sessions it was like a slap in the face with cold water. It was just like, ah, oh, damn it. Like, I thought I was going to get another one of those. <laughs> well, at least he or somebody had the judgment to say this doesn't need to be on the album. That's true, I guess. And I, I feel like it sort of quietly slipped in, too. It wasn't like a big thing. Like, he sort of just like quietly put it out, which is kind of what this track deserves a little bit. Yeah, and it's quietly slipping away. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye bye, <laughs> bye, -bye. Let's move on to this week of Beatles history. All right. And uh, we've got some birthdays. Yay. So happy happy belated George Martin, born January 3rd, 1926. Same day as my dad. Not same year, but uh, I did not know they shared a birthday, so it's pretty cool. Well, happy birthday to both of them. Yeah. Another birthday. Happy birthday to Mike McCartney, whose birthday is on January 7th, the day we're recording in 1944. Mm. Paul's little brother. Also known to some as Mike McGear of Scaffold. Yes, you might know their song, Thank You Very Much. They've have got a couple others, too. Some comedy bits. He is also a very talented photographer. For me, I think the most well-known picture is the cover of Chaos and Creation in the Backyard, which is like, it's kind of a, a really zoomed out picture of Paul in his backyard with a guitar 
probably like 1963. It's such a nice picture. I know. It may have been earlier, I think. Cause it's Maybe. Through, like, and it's the thing I love. It's like it's through their mother's lace curtains, which is so lovely. Like the whole picture is just and Paul is so unaware of him taking the picture. He's just out there with his guitar, like, you know, probably just like twiddling around. Yeah. So sweet. I love that. And of course, this week, and we're going to discuss it in great detail in a second. Uh, January 1st was the Beatles audition for Decca Records, the failed audition. Yes. Yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen. <laughs> didn't work out for the Beatles. Okay, bye. We're done. No more bye Beatles bye. podcast. Cue <laughs> the outro. Anyway. <laughs> But yeah, so that happened, and uh, we're going to get to it uh, after the break. I secured them an audition at Decca on New Year's Day, 1962. They came to London and stayed at the Royal Hotel, paying 27 shillings a night for bed and breakfast. They were poor, and I wasn't rich, but we all celebrated with rum and scotch and coke which was becoming a Beatle drink even then. So thank you, Brian Epstein, for that lovely intro. That was Brian talking from Anthology 1. And I believe, I have to double-checked, but I think he's reading directly from his autobiography, Cellar Full of Noise, our book club book. And it was obviously ghostwritten by Derek Taylor, but from Brian's own words. So we'll count it as truth. Very excited to read that with all of you guys. Mm -hmm. I haven't read in a long time. So... Brian started off this process of trying to get the Beatles a record deal. So he, I believe, made the promise to them when he said, I want to be your manager. I will get you a record contract. And that was one of the things they were sort of like, sure, Brian, we'll see. Wouldn't you know it? He was not even their manager one month when he started schlepping down to London to try to find them a deal. He went to Columbia. He went to Pi. He went to Phillips. He went to Oriole. All of them turned him down. The only label that even took an interest, half an interest, was DECA. Can we just pause for a minute to acknowledge how crazy and amazing that is? Yeah. Less than a month. And they didn't even have a formal contract. Like, it wasn't anything signed or anything. He was just like, yep, I'm on it. And he goes down to London and is, like, going to all these offices that of people I'm sure he had dealt with, you know, through NEMS and that kind of thing, but not like, not like this, not as a manager. He'd never been a fucking manager. No. And they listened to him because he bought a lot of records. So yeah. he was known as somebody who's going to spend a lot of money at these places. So they gave him the time of day. Well, it's funny you say that because that's the, pretty much the biggest reason why Deco was even interested because they knew because of NEMS that Brian did buy a lot of records. He had a lot of pull in the Northern territories where record sales were concerned. So they were like, okay, well, I guess to a fa- as a favor to you, Brian, you know, we'll, we'll come up and listen to this band. And so this A&R guy called Mike Smith, he's an A&R assistant to Dick Rowe, who, you know, is very, looms very large in this legend. Okay. He comes up to see the Beatles at the Cavern Club on December 13th, 1961. And uh, he apparently thought they were, quote, unquote, wonderful on stage. And so that was a big feather in the Beatles cap because at the time, Decca and, of course, EMI were the two biggest labels in the UK. So for him to be like, OK, like, I'll come clear up to Liverpool, see you guys in this basement club play. And it's actually OK. So why don't you come down for an audition on New Year's Day? And that was the plan. On a very, very cold, frigidly cold New Year's Day, they, cold. the Beatles and Neil Aspinall made a 
absolutely treacherous trip from Liverpool. They got lost. The trip took 10 hours. It was snowing. <laughs> it was cold. It was probably black ice all over the place. It must oh. have been terrifying. Yeah, it's funny. In Cynthia's book, John, she says that John told her that, you know, they arrived pretty late, like 10 o'clock at night. And he said, just in time to see the drunks jumping in the Trafalgar Square fountain. Oh, Amazing. Nice. Welcome to London, boys. <laughs> and then... <laughs> I love this story, and I think I read this on Richie Unterberger's website, that when they arrived, these two lowlifes tried to sneak into their van and smoke weed, just because it was cold and they wanted to hide because it was still, you know, illegal. So they were like, oh, you know what, we're just going to, like, go in these guys' van and do this with all their equipment and them having been on the road, getting lost for 10 hours. Well, at least they didn't steal anything. That's sweet. And because the Beatles hadn't met Bob Dylan yet, they didn't join him. Yeah. No, they were still still little babies. Mm -hmm. So... And, you know, they obviously, you know, went to Decca New Year's Day. And people are often like, why would they audition New Year's Day? Well, it wasn't a holiday then. It wasn't a holiday in Britain in the early 60s. So most likely it was just your typical Monday morning, January 1st, 1962 at 11 a.m. God, what a terrible Monday morning because you know everybody (laughs) was partying anyway. Including oh, yeah. Mike Smith because he was late because he partied too hard the night before because New Year's Eve does. So thank you, governments of the world, for giving us this day off. Yeah, part of me feels bad for Mike Smith because it's like, yeah, he had to roll in there all hungover and listen to this like band that he wasn't even jazzed about, really. Nobody was happy that day. No, nobody was. Nobody was. So... For the audition, you know, of course, it's John, Paul, George, and Pete going into this audition. Uh, Brian was there also. They performed 15 songs in less than an hour, depending on who you believe. So some people say it was like an hour. Some people say it was like Pete Best has said it went on for hours. I wouldn't believe Pete Best. And we'll get to that in a second. (laughs) Um, But probably about an hour it took to perform these songs we have 15 songs at least on the recorded sessions that uh were released what but that was released during the anthology right yeah well so most of them are on the anthology but then they later covered some more some of the songs that they played for the deck audition in the bbc sessions so that's why you hear like buddy holly's crying and waiting hoping which george sings lead on but they have yeah some covers that they would cover later obviously they did money later on their albums but they did that for the deck audition so there are a couple of overlapping things in those 15 songs what do you think of the audition tape i love it i really i mean i have such fond memories of hearing it on the anthology like the tracks and i love three cool cats it's so (laughs) cute I know. I've always loved that. And it's funny because when we started talking about doing this episode and really like when I started researching it, I was like, I've never noticed certain things that people point out about these tapes because I always just thought they were so fun. Even like the Sheik of Araby, I was like now looking back on it and I'm like, yeah, that is a weird choice. But, <laughs> you know, back when the anthology came out, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like, I love that. George does such a good job on that song. George is like the superstar of these DECA auditions. That's not saying a whole lot because they all were kind of bad, but like George, he comes off the best, at least in these tapes. John and Paul, I think, were were much more nervous than you usually hear them, especially Paul. Yeah, for sure. He did that like kind of Elvis-y, Paul Ramon sort of thing a couple of times, <laughs> which, I mean, that, that's just kind of the the way you're going to sing Bessie Mucho if someone's going to make you do that. But... <laughs> Yeah, that's true. He was trying to be like suave. And yeah, exactly. Neil Aspinall had this quote, uh, quote, unquote, Paul couldn't sing one song. He was too nervous and his voice started cracking up. 
They're all worried about the red light on in the studio. I asked if it could be put off, but we're told people might come in if it were off. You, you what? We said. We didn't know what all that meant. They were so green. They were so scared. It's crazy. And then Mike Smith actually said that Paul was the worst one to own the editions. He, uh, he said the one that played the most bum notes was McCartney. Quote, unquote, I was very unimpressed with what was happening with the bass line. I mean, to be fair, Paul had only played the bass for like less than a year because Stu quit the band sometime in 61. True. So Paul was pretty new, yeah. to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Being the apologist this episode. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You know, though, that for their first shout out, it's not that bad. I actually really like some of these songs because you kind of get a flavor of what they really did when they were in Hamburg, when they were at the clubs. These are strange choices, but this is what they filled their, their set list in with before they played mostly originals. Well, it's funny because, and I'm going to go on a little bit of a Brian rant. Go for it. <laughs> I'm going to gather my strength because one of the things people talk about with the odd choices, like you say, of the set list, like what they played for the audition, and, you know, especially things like Besame Mucho, people say that Brian sort of strong-armed them into doing songs like September in the Rain and, like, all these weird sort of ballady. They did Take Good Care of My Baby, which is a big hit for Bobby V, and all these weird tracks that, I don't know, some of them, like, Over the Rainbow even was, was bandied about. And it's like you can't imagine them singing these songs. And people are like, oh, Brian made them do it. That's why they didn't pass the audition, as it were. And that's why they never let Brian have input musically again in their whole career. And I'm like, people just love, love something new to blame fucking Brian for. And it's like, he never, ever made it a policy to get involved with them. He was always sort of like, hands off, let the artists do their thing. I will do the business. I don't see him at this critical moment being like, you're going to play all these schmaltzy songs. I'm sure he probably said play September in the ranks. He had listed that in his top 10 songs for 1961 and Mersey Beat. So that was probably on his radar. But here's the thing. If it's on Brian Epstein's radar and he made them try to play it, like I would say like Take Good Care of My Baby will probably also fall into that category because he's running one of the most successful record stores in the UK, certainly in the Northern UK. And I'm sure he's like got his pulse on what is happening, what's what's doing well, what Decca might like. Like he's not doing this just sort of willy-nilly to be a control freak. He's doing it because like, oh, you know, if you cover the sort of Besame Mucho's ballady Elvis sounding song, which by the way, Decca El is Elvis's distributor through RCA in the UK. So that makes sense. Anyway, mm. taking a breath here. But so anyway, so my point is like, if Brian did say, okay, cover like these four songs or whatever the hell he asked them to do during this, it was because he was sort of like strategically placing it so the Beatles would have that in their pocket. But people say that the Beatles were so pissed off. They were so mad. That's why they like fucked up the audition, whatever. It's like, no, they were kids. They were in a recording studio for the first time. They were unhappy. Like if they would have played She Loves You, I Don't Want to Hold Your Hand, which would have never happened at this point. Like even that would have probably sounded like garbage. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair. Anyway. So stop blaming Brian for it. I totally agree with what you say. First off, this is probably a lot of the things that they weren't doing anyway. I mean, he wasn't going to make them learn new songs. They were doing these songs. So it's not like he said, here, learn these for the audition. He chose right. things that were already in their catalog. And he chose, if, if he even chose anything for them, what he did was he chose a range of songs that 
would show their potential range. So everything from money, that's what I want, which is, you know, you see John's really hard, hard rock. You see Like Dreamers Do, which is a Lennon-McCartney original. And you see Originals, two other, yeah. Yeah, you see another one in there too. You see Love of the Loved. And then, uh, and Hello Little Girl. So there's three of them. And then you see the Lieber and Stoller stuff, you know, kind of the Motown. You see even the Latin stuff with Besame Mucho. And Phil Spector with, you know, to know her, to love her. Right. You know, flipped. flipped. And, yeah, exactly. And it's like, you also see, as we just talked about, the Beatles cover these songs later on their albums. They cover them at the BBC sessions. They cover them live. They cover them everywhere. And it's like, you know, oh, they really hated it so much. They're going to do it again, you know, for their yeah. for their formal EMI album. I don't think so. Paul McCartney loved singing Till There Was You, which is the schmaltziest oh. song from The Music Man. No joke. So, no joke. Whatever. Also, I mean, how much longer was it that they were actually in the recording studio fighting George Martin about doing that How Do You Do It song? So it's, yeah. it's not like they suddenly grew a pair when they got into a real recording studio. They had the same attitude then as they did a few months later. Yeah, exactly. And I think it comes up, I'm trying to remember, because I read the story uh, when we were doing our episode, which you should definitely listen to. We talk about it, I think, on that episode, about when Brian tried to make them do something. This was very, very early on when he thought maybe he could. And they said, no, Brian, we're not doing it. And he was like, okay, cool. And he never like made them do anything again. And he it would even go on to say, like, I would always suggest things, but the Beatles would never do anything that they wouldn't want to do. Tony Bramwell has this quote in his book <laughs> where he says, Paul did Bessame Mucho at Brian's insistence. He muttered that it was a silly ballad. We should have just done our own stuff, he said. First of all, Paul seems like he would love that song. Yeah. Um, gonna, yeah, I'm just going to put that out there. That's very, like, Till There Was You esque. Paul Ramon. I mean, come on. He loves that oh, stuff. That's like Paul Ramon at, like, the tippity top, right? Mm hmm. And so anyway, but like even, but if he didn't want to do it, he wouldn't have done it. Like they would not have done it. Like they would just said, no, Brian, we're not doing this. Even if it is like an audition for a record label and maybe they were sort of like, we're going to trust you, Brian. We're going to do take good care of my baby and September in the rain and whatever the hell, you know, I think if he really hated it that much, he would have pushed back a little harder. If Brian did have influence too, it's part of his his goal was to smooth out the Beatles' rough edges. And how else would you do that but sing these, like, nice songs that the girls like and their mothers like? And yeah. That, that's what Till There Was You was. It was the one that made everybody kind of forget about them with their, you know, sex innuendos in, in some of the other songs and look at his doe eyes and his blinking and his looking up at the sky and, you know, fall in love with, with this innocent little boy. I mean, it, it, was, it was very effective for them to sing songs like this. And they knew it. I don't think that there would have been a world where Brian could have forced them to do it. Plus, they probably figured that, you know, Brian had talked to Decca. Brian had interfaced with them. Brian had brought the guy to the Cavern Club to see them. You know, if Brian had recommendations, like, sure, we're going to take them. But I don't think they would have done it bitterly. I think they would have been like, okay, you seem to know what you're talking about, Brian. Like, we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So anyway, point is, I don't think that Brian strong-armed them into doing any of this material. I mean, also, how many managers do you think would have let them do three originals. That's crazy. You know, for the tapes, you know, obviously, like, they were not at their best. You know, they had Pete. Yeah, yeah, the beat, was, <laughs> the beat was not exactly on all the time. The Pete beat. Uh, <laughs> um, copyright. Yeah, copyright Pete beat. I'm going to make that as t-shirts. Nobody will buy them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, also, you have to consider, they go into this audition Monday morning after they got in super late. They're probably fucking tired and they had brought all their like shitty beat up 
schlepped, you know, equipment to the DECA audition. And the DECA's like, nah, we're going to, you got to use our equipment. And I'm sure that threw them off big time. It might have been better, but it wasn't what they were used to. Yeah, exactly. And it's not like they, I mean, they didn't really change anything up by the time they got to EMI either. They had to, I was reading, they had to like solder together Paul's amp to like audition for George Martin because they just didn't have money to buy equipment. (laughs) They apparently didn't have money for a while to buy new equipment. So it was just the same crap. They were like schlepping everywhere. So after the audition, Mike Smith said that the tapes were terrific. And the group celebrated with a dinner in London that night. First audition ever for a major record label a month after they first got a manager. Not so bad. Not so shabby. No, no, no. I actually love those tapes. I think they're a wonderful record of where the Beatles were at that time. We would never have had those without this tape. 100%. And it's funny because you can compare them to like the Beatles six months later, a year later. And it's they grew so much in such a short amount of time. Yeah. And their songwriting grew so much too. I mean, I love the songs that they put on there. Love of the Love is one of my favorite Scylla recordings. Mm, I love Scylla. But hearing Paul McCartney do it is such a different experience. And he probably never would have recorded that himself. No, never. I mean, he did, you know, step inside love later during the White Album sessions, a sort of a demo. But yeah, I don't see Love of the Love being, you know, another Scylla song that they would have ever really recorded. I love him doing that. (laughs) So good. So the verdict, after weeks of waiting, the Beatles were rejected in February of 1962. And Maybe Decca A&R man Dick Rowe said one of the most famous Eat My Word statements ever uttered. He said guitar groups are on the way out. I'm not sure he actually said that. That might be apocryphal. I wonder if it's in writing somewhere. I tried to also, we both did a lot of research on this, but I, yeah, I can't find, that'd be a question for Mark Lewison, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll confirm or deny that at some point. But yeah, I don't know. Like, it just seems too good to be true. I mean, that's a great quote for history. <laughs> no, if <laughs> yeah. he actually did say that. Not for him, though. He probably regretted saying that if he did. Well, it's just like Mimi, you know, saying, you know, the guitar is fine for Hobby John, but you never make a living off it. It's just like these amazing quotes that sort of like exist in the ether that Mm -hmm. are just so ironic. Well, the Beatles story is so ridiculously full of kismet that if they said it, it's not surprising, but it's just one more, you know, stranger than fiction sort of thing that you would have said. Yes, 100%. You Yeah, yeah. It is. The Beatles story, a lot of it is stranger than fiction. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. Anyway, after they get they got rejected, John Lennon really thought that was it. It was curtains for the group. He said later, you know, we really thought that was it. We thought it was the end. Fun fact, though, we're talking about the Decca tapes. John and Yoko sent Paul and Linda an acetate of what they thought were the Decca tapes as a Christmas gift in 1971, which we could talk, we could do a whole episode about like the cryptic meaning behind that whole thing. But actually, it turned out that those really weren't the DECA auditions. They were some of the tapes from the BBC. So even John came uh, straight. And this is interesting. I had never heard this before. <laughs> what is this about Pete Best? What did he say? Oh, Christ. Okay. So Pete Best, this is why I don't trust him as far as I can throw him with this. Although I guess we have to make the caveat, Pete Best was in the room. So, I mean, it could have been true. And he did write this in his autobiography, which is done, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. So Pete Best made an audacious claim that in the audition room, Brian overstepped his boundary and said something to John about um, his guitar playing. And then John responded with, quote, unquote, (laughs) I have to make that very clear. You've got nothing to do with the music. You go back and count your money, you Jewish git. Oh, God. Um, I know. And I wrote in in our notes 
guys, I wrote, first of all, no. And second of all, no. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's just so much wrong with that. There's no way John, who's like full of fucking nerves, he's like a, you know, cat in a room full of rocking chairs in this audition room. No way he's going to say that. Number two, no way Brian's going to correct his guitar playing at any time, let alone in front of like DECA people trying to get a record contract. Like what the fuck Pete best? I'd love to ask Pete today, like if that's true, I'm sure he wouldn't contradict himself, but it just seems too crazy. It just seems too unlikely. I don't know. I don't discount that John probably said that to Brian in public more than point. once. I mean, but that not what, here. Yeah. yeah. This, this, even John, I feel like would be nervous enough that he wouldn't be doing that in public. 100% agree. But like, that's one reason why people give that, like they didn't get the audition, but I really don't think that ever happened. <laughs> not in that room anyway. God. So after that, no, Brian met with Dick Rowe and sales manager Sidney Arthur Beecher Stevens back in London afterwards to try and change their mind. It did not happen. Nope. No. Uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately for them, Decca auditioned another band that day, Brian Poole and the Tremolos, with the intention of signing one or the other. So maybe they thought guitar groups were on their way out, but they were kind of hedging their bets just in case. So between the two of them, it ended up that Brian Poole and the Tremolos got the contract. Now, what their audition sounded like, I don't think there's a record of it. So what we do know is that the Tremolos got the contract likely because they already lived in London, so less travel, and they had a pre-existing friendship with one of the A&R men. So that made them easier to work with, easier to promote, easier to deal with if, you know, they were not a success, they're not investing as much. Mike Smith, he would later claim that Dick Rowe sort of came to him and said, okay, choose one or the other. And he said he chose the Tremolos because his optician back in his hometown had mentioned them. And he's like, okay, well, I've heard their name before. Let's do that. And they were better than the studio, he said. Uh, but he, he later said that he did meet the Beatles and they, quote unquote, gave me a two-finger salute, but that's on par for the course. So at least he's got a sense of humor about it. That's good. To anybody out there who performs or auditions for a living, it sucks. So you can get or lose a job and be the Beatles on the recommendation of your optician. Yeah, something that's so wildly out of your control that it's insanity. That happens in all aspects of casting and it sucks, but it's also, you know, maybe a positive story because don't lose hope because even the Beatles got rejected for a ridiculous reason. But the Tremolos did okay for themselves. I mean, they had some hits. Uh, they had 13 top 40 hits between the 63 and 71, and seven of those were in the top 10. And I'm just equating that for our American listeners who might be familiar with, like, say, The Love and Spoonful, because they had, I think, um, gosh, I'm a little rusty on my Spoonful history, but I think they had nine top 10 hits um, in two years. So a little bit more compacted, but kind of on the same level, I would say, sort of. Because the Tremolos weren't a huge hit here. I love two of their later songs. One was a cover of Cat Stevens' Here Comes My Baby. And a little known Four Seasons cover, Silence is Golden. And actually, I think the Tremolos version is way better known. Worth a listen. I don't think I've ever heard that. Oh, you would know it if you heard it. It's definitely been all over the radio. It's probably one of those things where it's like, it's you've heard it so many times that you can't recall it. <laughs> which Makes happens sense. to me all the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
And ironically, when the tremolos actually hit the UK charts in 1963 with a cover of Twist and Shout. Interesting. They kind of had a similar trajectory in the beginning to the Beatles. So Decca as a company would also go on to turn down Manfred Mann and the Yardbirds. You know, do I diddy? Diddy dum diddy do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they did sign the Stones, which we'll talk about in a second, the Moody Blues, the Zombies, the Applejacks, Dave Barry, Lulu, Alan Price, and more. Funnily enough, they signed the Rolling Stones as a direct reaction to not having signed the Beatles on a tip from George Harrison, no less, hmm. to Dick Rowe. They were judging, I believe it was like talent contest in 63 together up in Liverpool. And George was like, hey, I just saw this band in London called the Rolling Stones. You should check them out. You better bet. Dick Rowe was like, yep, not going to lose out another one. So yeah. they got the Stones. Good job. <laughs> George is also salty enough to just sort of do that tongue-in-cheek. Like, I imagine him doing that very, like, slyly, which just makes me happy. Just makes me happy. Um, also, Pete Best would go on to record for Decca as part of Lee Curtis and the All-Stars with, who else? Mike fucking Smith producing. Oh, I guess he saw something in that beat that he liked. <laughs> well, he did think that Pete was a better drummer than Ringo. Well, that's a debate for another episode. <laughs> yeah, right. But after the audition, Brian got to keep the tapes obviously, because they're out there now, but he pressed those into acetates at the HMV on Oxford Street in London, which is a very, you know, important location for the Beatles because when he pressed them at the store, uh, I think a publisher overheard some of the demos and was sort of like, hey, I want the publishing rights. And Brian was sort of reluctant, but the publisher, in order to try to sway him in his direction, was sort of like, hey, Brian, you know, I've got this guy over at Parlophone called George Martin. I think you should meet him. And kind of the rest is history. Although George Martin did say when he heard the Decca tapes, quote unquote, I wasn't knocked out at all. In defense of those people who turned it down, it was pretty lousy tape. Recorded in a back room, very badly balanced, not very good songs, and a rather raw group. But I thought they were interesting enough to bring down for a test. And the rest is history, I guess. We'll have to talk about this more when uh, we do it something about the first recording with George Martin, but Mark Lewison unearthed a very interesting fact, alternative story in his first edition of Tune In, which was that George Martin was kind of forced into accepting the Beatles. Oh, that's right. Because he slept with a secretary and was kind of in the doghouse at EMI. And they said, here, you got to do this. And he, he kind of had to. We'll get into that another day. But that was there. That's one of the most mind-blowing facts of my recent Beatles history. When I learned that, I was like, what? <laughs> George Martin did what? Yeah. Thank you, Mark Lewison. <laughs> yes, Mark Lewison is a gift on so many levels, but that was just like taking it to another plane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a gift I didn't even know I needed, just to have that in my mind. Not 100% sure I want it, but I've got it. Is it bad to say that kind of makes George Martin hotter? I mean, George Martin, we could talk about... <laughs> <laughs> like how hot George Martin is, but like that's that's amazing. <laughs> well, I like a little Marstein fanfic myself. Oh my god. Okay. Well, we just we go off on a tangent about that hardcore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Listen to our episode with Rob Sheffield if you don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> or just search Tumblr, you'll find it. Or just search it, yeah, whatever. This story leads me to wonder, because another group did get this contract, what would the Beatles have been if they had gotten the DECA contract? 
I mean, no one can say that the Beatles would have taken the Tremolos career path if they were signed to DECA. I mean, they are two different bands. The Tremolos were great and are still great. They're still performing today. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Beatles, the Beatles were the Beatles. I mean, they were these massive geniuses. They wrote their own songs from the very beginning. Their talents would have distinguished them from their peers, no matter where they were signed. But I mean, would anything have been different? And Really, I wonder, because there were a lot of things that, you know, the arrangement with George Martin and just the chemistry between them did lead them to easily have that I don't know if they would have had with more traditional A&R men. I mean, the first one is, would they have performed their own material? I mean, they heard those three songs. They knew that this was kind of a special thing about the Lennon-McCartney songwriting team is that they were a songwriting team, you know, and they still weren't interested enough to sign them Whereas EMI really wanted the rights to those songs. So, mm-hmm. you know, would DECA have discouraged writing? Would they have quashed that in the Beatles? And if they did, would the Beatles have taken that bullshit? Well, you have to look at probably what would be the closest counterpart. And I don't think there is one to the Beatles. Like you said, they were superstars. They were always going to be superstars. They had this insane combination that it's the reason why there's no been no second Beatles in history. But DECA had the Stones. So let's look at the Stones. Their first few albums were, they had some originals, but a lot of it were, you know, blues, R&B covers, because that's what the Stones were. They were that kind of a band. So I don't know if it was really down to DECA that didn't really give them the freedom to really explore that, or if they, they're just not songwriters like the Beatles are songwriters. So it's hard to make that comparison. Also, they followed the Beatles, which means that they already had this path in front of them. Exactly. So I think as far as DECA, would the Beatles still been the Beatles? I don't I I don't think so, personally, just because it's such a different incubator for them at that really important part of their career, which is so early. And, you know, that's where George Martin comes in. It's hard to say because we don't really know the producers at DECA as well as we know George Martin and right. what he did for them. But we do know that you know, George Martin was open to having them record their own things and that he was interested in being a participant. I mean, from we don't have a recording of this, and I hope one day we do, but the original version of Please Please Me was slow, apparently, more Mm -hmm. like a Roy Orbison song, and George Martin didn't like it. He worked with them to make it what it was, which became a massive hit, and doesn't sound like it was that great. So if the DECA guys heard that, would they have just said, nope? We're not doing that. We're going to do whatever cover, you know, we, we want you to do. George Martin obviously had a history of doing like comedy record. They sort of had this like ingrained repartee from the very beginning where it was sort of kismet. You know, they were sort of like soulmates before they even met. And I think it was almost predestined, which sounds totally hippy trippy. But, you know, I don't think there was any ever anybody else for them. But George Martin, I I can't imagine Decca presenting somebody like that. It just was too perfect. Right. That combination. That's another one of those, it's not apocryphal, but it's stranger than fiction, where George Martin says to them after their recording session, is there anything that you don't like? And, and George Harrison pipes up with, well, I don't <laughs> like your tie. So good. That, that sealed it. Yeah. You know, and, and somebody who wasn't quite as weird as George Martin, because let's face it, he was delightfully weird, probably so wouldn't great. have dealt with that. But he thought it was funny. So there we go. I think it was a blessing in disguise. They didn't get the deck audition. Obviously, I don't think we would have had anywhere close to the Beatles. I think, you know, we can talk about this in a second, the ultimate outcome with Decca. But I think it would have been, you know, the Beatles breaking up. I, I don't know. It was just such a 
I want to say volatile, but that's not even the word I mean. It was just such a sensitive connection at that point where they were so like in the throes of just emerging as artists. You know, they really needed the perfect way to come out of that and to grow and to blossom and to become the Beatles like that we all know and love. And I just... I don't see that happening at DECA. It just wasn't that type of label. Yeah. To be fair, EMI wasn't that type of label either. I think it was all George Martin. I really think it was just down to him. Right, because Parlophone was this little quirky, strange, mostly comedy yeah, they started... thing. It was weird. It was like the, yeah. the weird stuff goes to this dude who's super strange. They were like, George, you sit over there with Parlophone. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and another thing about DECA was that would they have replaced Pete had they got signed? Because... As you just said, Mike Smith thought Pete Best was a good drummer. In fact, a better drummer than Ringo went on to work with him later on in his career. Yeah, and he would have been on the contract. So that would have also created a lot of like legal issues, a lot of like, you know, sign seal delivered on Pete Best being a permanent Beatle. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a disaster. Right, so they couldn't have had Brian <laughs> sack him later on. And there was a chemistry aspect to Ringo, and I know Ringo is not your favorite, but... Ringo, I think, is the final piece of that Beatles puzzle, gave them the perfect chemistry. I mean, let's say that the trajectory was almost exactly the same, and a year later they made a movie. Can you imagine A Hard Day's Night with Pete? Oh my god, no, that sounds terrible. And yeah, I mean, to be fair, like, no, Ringo's not my favorite, but I do think that Ringo was the only choice. Ringo is is that last piece of the puzzle. Like, there's only Ringo for the Beatles, so it's like, you know, no, but I don't even want to imagine A Hard Day's Night with Pete. <laughs> Are you kidding? There would have been no plot. Ringo was like the best actor out of all that. He was the most endearing. He drove that movie. And it's like, no, like Pete, I don't want to imagine too much of Pete Best. Like, and no hate to Pete Best. Like you do you, my friend, but I just don't, I don't want that in my scope of reality. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Beatles, you know? And also there's the international component. I mean, if you look at the Tremolos, they were not really that successful outside of the UK, despite having a good number of hits there. But would the Beatles have had the same fate? EMI was initially unable to convince its American subsidiary to release the Beatles records, but Brian went off and he did the legwork and he made it happen. And would that have happened with DECA? Could he have done that legwork? Could he have convinced anybody in America to play them? I mean, I would like to think yes, because Brian's brilliant and he's my favorite. But I mean, who knows? I don't think the Tremolos, I, and I don't know, let me just put that out there. I don't know who their manager was. I don't know their backstory as well. I love their music. So I don't know what they had driving them. I don't know their backstory. I don't know like who their manager was or what their plans were, what their goals were. But obviously you have somebody like Brian Epstein who is going to go down to London without a contract and say, you need to give my boys a record deal less than a month into his being their manager. Like that's a special type of person that you don't see. So, I mean, it could have been possible. I don't know. Again, like you've got to look at, you know, DECA had the Rolling Stones, but how much of it was up to DECA, you know, their, their international success. I don't know. This is not a Rolling Stones podcast. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You never know. God, because the Rolling Stones, BC, the Rolling Stones. Oh, it doesn't flow as well. Okay. No. Nah, nah. I need the alliteration in there. <laughs> all right so that is the beatles and deca if you haven't heard this and i'm sure most of you have but check it out it's a wonderful historical record of the baby beatles and paul ramon so cute so cute 
three good uh, Lennon McCartney, early Lennon McCartney songs that were not recorded on a, on a standard album. And then go listen to Love of the Love by Scylla, because then you'll get the full picture of that song. Yes. Just listen to Scylla. Just I was going to say, we can't get through a fucking episode without plugging Scylla Black, so there's that. I mean, we can't even go into, because, you know, we're already just decked out and George Martin out, but, you know, the whole effect that the Beatles maybe being signed to Decca would have had on Brian's other artists. Like, who knows? Because, you know, who knows if Scylla would have had a deal? Who knows, you know, about his other artists? Right. Like Billy Jay. Like, who, who knows? Would there have been know? any of those? Because Brian, if, let's just say the Beatles broke up, which is a possibility because before they met Brian, they were about, you know, they were... They're on the verge. They were yeah. working regular jobs. They were kind of giving up. And if if this had gone sour or they had broken the contract because they couldn't work with Pete or because they couldn't do their own songs, that would have been it. And then, you know, would Brian have had the, you know, the cachet and the courage to go say, I'm just going to have a stable of artists and I'm going to manage a bunch of these acts. There wouldn't have been that Liverpool uprising in the music industry. Oh my God. I just love Brian so much. It just makes me love him so much more to like think about this in the bigger context. Yes. So thank you, Brian. And thank you, Decca, for not taking this band. Yes. And you know what? It's funny. I was thinking about this today in the context of the new year, how refreshing it is. Because, you know, that was probably a huge thing for them and they were really counting on it. And it was going to be, this is it, guys. We've made it. We've got an audition with Decca. You know, this is going to be the moment it all changes for us and it all comes together. We become big stars. And then it's sort of like, sorry, boys, you didn't get it. And how crushing just soul crushing that must have been, especially when they were on the verge of breaking up and they just hired this manager who's never fucking managed anybody and all this stuff, this crazy disappointment, this insane, like just like heart wrenching blow. And just think it was probably the best thing that could have happened to them. And that's such a good metaphor to take into the new year. Don't you think? I love it. So even if the worst thing ever happens to you, it could be just preparing you for the thing that you need and the thing that you could not have done as well without, because the Beatles could not have done as well without George Martin and I. So don't give up and give the world two big old middle fingers. Hell yeah. Just like Paul on the beach at St. Bars <laughs> and we brought it full circle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to not talk about that. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is literally just a, a podcast about Paul on the beach of St. Barros with his yeah. two middle fingers in the air. It is basically my reaction picture to almost anything that everybody says to me when they text me weird stuff. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Well, that brings us to our favorite Beatles related thing of the week, other than. Paul on the beach of St. Barth's giving two middle fingers. Because <laughs> right. I can't talk about it again because I've already talked about it too much. I'll say something else. I mean, we can't really talk about it too much. But yes, what, what's your favorite Beatles thing, related thing of the week, Erica? I found this article. It's this opinion piece by this guy. I've never heard of him. I saw it on Christmas Day. The title is, I thought the Beatles were weird and depressing. This is why I changed my mind. I'm really interested in people who honestly just don't like the Beatles. Because, of course, there are people who do that to be, you know, nonconformist in their conforming way. And all they're posers and they're overrated or whatever. But this was a really, like, heartfelt article about how he just didn't like them, but how they kind of wormed their way into his heart. Mm -hmm. It was sweet. It had a lot to do with being a second-generation 
fan and seeing Paul McCartney in Glastonbury in 2004. He kind of got there through a Paul solo event, which I just think is is really sweet because I mean that's a, the reason a lot of a lot of us were so connected to the Beatles was because Paul was still out there for sure. And it's also just a really good story of like you know as we talk about all the time, it's like how did you? What are your Beatles? How did you get to the Beatles? You know, mm-hmm. and that's such a good that's a cool way. You know, at Glastonbury, St. Paul, like that's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, and there's and there there is hope for everybody, even those people out there who say they hate the Beatles. They could change. You too can be saved. <laughs> or whatever. I like it. I like the religious metaphor. Thanks. So what's what what are you obsessed with this week? Speaking of religious metaphors, uh, not really. Um, so I got to watch on Friday night, so a few days ago, the John and Yoko Above Us Only Sky documentary, which is kind of a reworking of the Imagine documentary um, that came out, you know, around the time of the album. When I had it on VHS, it was just sort of like a succession of music videos done to the songs of Imagine. But this, and it had footage, you know, interspersed of recording the album and and Johnny Yoko sort of in their home in Tittenhurst and all this kind of stuff. But this is such a really well done documentary. They expound on a lot of elements. Some of my favorite moments, you see John and George Harrison in the studio together, really collaborating. And I know for us Beatles scholars and people, we sort of, you know, kind of put George in this like baby brother category where John really didn't give a shit. I mean, he may have pretended he gave a shit, shit about George Harrison and his contributions as a musician, but really shows him sort of taking George's words to heart, them working together on some of the imagined tracks. And some of the other best moments are honestly like home movies of Julian at Tittenhurst and hanging out with Yoko in a boat and just playing with other kids and just, and I never, in my mind, I never put Julian in that time period hanging out with his dad and Yoko. Mm -hmm. So it's so lovely. And Julian has this quote in the documentary where it's like, you know, I think if my dad or I had thought about it too much, it wouldn't have worked, but we were just sort of like going with it and it was perfect, you know? Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. And Julian in the documentary, he's so, he's got such a good head on his shoulders about the whole thing. And I know that must be hard because I'm sure it's very emotional in a lot of ways, like a really complex sort of situation to watch these tapes and to think about his dad and just all this stuff. But he's so pragmatic about it that it's really inspiring. He's such an interesting person. So it's cool to see him show up there too, but I definitely recommend it. It's from Channel 4 um, in the UK and I think it's distributed through Eagle Rock um, Entertainment here. But uh, you can find it. It's out there. Was the footage of Julian new footage, like contemporary now? Or was it um, made a while back? No, it's now they had, yeah, new interviews with him. Um, they had new interviews with a lot of people involved in the making of the record. And then a couple of new snippets from Yoko as well. So oh, Yoko, cool. Oh, Yoko my God. Pops up. Yeah. I'm totally going to check that out. Yeah, it's great. It's very cool. It's actually where I heard that quote from John that I referenced earlier. It's, like I said, a recording of him. So it's definitely him that says the whole thing about, you know, it was my ego or whatever that wouldn't let Yoko have a writing credit on Imagine. So it's in there. Nice. And once again, we go full circle with something we talked about earlier. I I know. It just, it's, it's, we can't plan it. It just happens. Stranger than fiction, just like the Beatles. Yeah, kismet. 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 Total kismet. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that'll do it for us. And thank you for listening to Because the Beatles. As always, subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. 
Give us a rating and review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, BC the Beatles everywhere. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And of course, anything you want to talk about, hit us up at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye.